This is the voice of Grima, representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command, speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as knights and scholars. We speak to you now, precise thing as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world and the beings on other worlds around you. Hey everybody, this is Mateo. Thanks for listening to the WhatCast. This episode is part one of two of Mike's wartime UFO extravaganza. For the past two or three months now, Mike's done vigorous bookwork. Sans the internet, guys. No internet. Just good old bookwork, finding the best UFO stories that have occurred around wartime. We hope you guys enjoy. It's a long one. Um, we'll do part two immediately following this episode. So yeah, we hope you guys enjoy. A bit of business, we've gotten a few reviews on iTunes from you guys. That's awesome, we appreciate that. I'm not sure exactly what that does, <laughs> but uh, it's a cool way to see what you guys have to say about the show and what you guys like and don't like, so we'll take everything you guys said on there into consideration, try to make the show the best we can. So, Jaws Sharkbite, Walter Poopenstein, Pickled Liver of Doom, thank you very much, you guys. We love you by your names alone. So everybody sit back, relax, and enjoy... Uh, Wartime UFOs Part 1. Hey everybody, this is Mateo, and thanks for checking out the WhatCast. Mike's here with me. What's up, man? Not too much, dude. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How's your day going? It's going. Could be worse, could be better. That's that's pretty much par for the course. Can't complain. Well, cool, man. You, for the past... What, like uh, almost two months now you've... Uh... Yeah, it's been a while. I can't wait to read a book where I can stop taking notes. <laughs> you just delve in, in uh, UFO research throughout war history. Right. How was that? <laughs> uh, it was it was really interesting, and uh, I think we'll probably make a two-part show out of this because there's just so much stuff here. But, I mean, I, I went back. I, I tried to find as many as I could. Going back, like even before the modern era, I've got some from BC or A. Yeah, I've got some from BC, some from early AD. Um, going all the way up through to the present, there's just so much stuff out there. It was really interesting, but it gets really annoying reading and then stopping to take notes. It's really time consuming, and I, I'm glad that I'm done with it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So what made you want to go into wartime UFOs? Well, I just, you hear a lot of reports from, uh, like, I don't know if, how familiar you are with Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project, but he's got a lot of military guys that have come forward with their stories, and it just seems like whatever these entities are seem to be uh, focusing in on us, especially when we're at war with each other. They, they seem more interested, and in some cases, they've even intervened. So, wow. Yeah, it's, I don't know, there's just a lot of cool stuff out there, and, and I had heard stories before I started doing the research that really got me interested in the subject. I mean, as as everyone knows, I'm already into the, the UFO stuff quite a bit, but... 
I figured I'd kind of bring that down a little bit and go and focus just on UFO activity during wartime and uh, see what I could learn from that. And I learned quite a bit. People might be familiar with ancient aliens, and I remember them mentioning the flying shields of fire that Alexander the Great's men encountered. I'm sure you'll probably cover that, but... Yeah, that's actually the earliest one I was able to find, which took place in 332 B.C., and he actually had two encounters with with these things. Um, The first time, he, he witnessed two silvery shields with fire spitting out from their rims in the sky, and two objects dove at his army and caused his horses and elephants to panic, and they refused to cross a river, which they had to cross to to do battle. So they basically had to scrap these plans because these flying objects in the sky kept diving down at the army, and they weren't able to cross the river as originally planned. Um, an interesting thing, though, is when he, he witnessed them a year later, this was during the siege of Tyre, um, he saw five of these shields, and they appeared to shoot lightning at the city walls. And he was laying siege to the city, so it was he wasn't able to get through the walls. They weren't able to uh, have an actual battle outside of the walls that everyone was hiding. And these shields came down, shot lightning at the city walls, and it allowed his city or his army to enter the city and capture it. So it aided him in battle. Right. First time they stopped him, the second time they helped him. That's strange. Yeah, and they were about a year apart, the two incidents. Wow. Yeah. They describe them quite specifically. Yeah, he said they were silvery shields with fire spitting from their rims. Yeah. So who knows if the if it was actual fire or if it was some sort of light that and and. You know, in those days, the only light that they had would have come from the sun or fire. Yeah. So it could have been, you know, just just illuminating around the edges of these silvery things and shield shape. I mean, that that could be that could mean a whole lot of different things depending on the shape of the shield. But I'm, I would assume by shield he meant circular or disc shape. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, that would fit with what we're hearing currently with the disc shaped craft, and then illuminated with light or fire is you know who, depending on who's telling it i guess is that that's the earliest report that that was found? the earliest i was able to find yeah but i found uh one from 312 ad which was the roman emperor constantine and his army was advancing on rome to do battle with a dude by the name of maxentius and um that night as he was marching in to do battle, uh, they, he saw a glowing cross-shaped object that appeared in the sky, which prompted him to order his troops to paint a cross on their shields. And he won the Battle of Milvian Bridge and, as a result, became the sole ruler of Rome. Now, this could be taken in one of two ways. You could look at it from the UFO perspective that he saw strange lights in the sky that gave his men morale and and he took it as a sign of victory or it could be taken in the religious way where it was a sign from god which prompted him to order his troops to paint the sign of the cross on their shields thus get god's blessing to they they were basically blessing him as the the sole ruler of rome that's very interesting indeed 
there's two ways to look at that either way. Yeah. A cross is kind of an unusual UFO shape to see, but it's still nonetheless an unidentified fine object. Yeah, and it, and it could have been maybe an X shape that he saw tilted, maybe, so it looked like a cross, or it could have been a diamond-shaped craft with lights along its its edges so that the lights appeared to be a cross. Very, very true. Or maybe it was just a sign from God, and it was just the, the glowing the glowing sign of the cross, letting him know that he was on his own or that he was being blessed by, by God and wasn't on his own. That's funny how something like that, like a UFO or even just whatever, a, a, a holy light or whatever, a presence or sign can influence something as big as a new ruler of an area. Right. And, and with UFOs, you, you see that a lot. Like people will, will say that they saw angels or, uh, if I don't know how familiar you are with um, was it Fatima or Medjugorje, the one where the sun danced in the sky and changed colors and was spinning. I'm not familiar but with that one. It was it was either Medjugorje or Fatima. I can't remember which. But what happened was uh, the Virgin Mary visited these children, or or an apparition claiming to be the Virgin Mary visited these children. And was the children were the only ones that could see her, despite other people being there. But she would give messages to the children that they would pass on, and uh, she told she told the children to tell the people to gather on this specific date. And when the date occurred, the sun started changing colors and moving and dancing across the sky. <laughs> which, um, I mean, it's the sun. How can that happen? You know? Yeah. The, so what else could it have been? And if it was something else, where was the sun during this point in time? Exactly. It's, it's a weird story. And but it it can that's another one of those ones that can be taken either way. It could be a UFO or it could be a sign from God. And I find that a lot of these, especially where lights are involved or um strange objects, not so much when they're describing like spacecraft, but when that when it's some unknown object or some unknown light that they're seeing a lot of times it does get attributed to being a sign from god yeah if it's something that out of the ordinary and these people are from a, a time where there's no airplanes or anything like that at all mm. so I mean, seeing something in the sky at all other than an animal was instantly strange well so, let's listen to this explanation that was given this was in 1235 a.d in japan and there was a general by the name of uh, Yoritsume, and his army witnessed lights flying in loops in the sky. And he ordered a scientific study uh, in, into what these lights were. And at the time, for for someone to actually do that, this I mean, this was in the middle of, or this was the Middle Ages, so scientific thought wasn't really a huge priority then. But he wanted to have scientific investigation done. And when it was concluded, his scientists told him that it was the wind causing the stars to sway. Huh. So, how's that for science? Yeah, very, well, well done. Clearly, the wind was, was blowing the stars in the sky. Back and forth. So, that was uh, that was their explanation for that. Uh, I, I have another one from the Middle Ages as well. It was, this was actually during the Black Death. 
in the year 1347, people reported seeing flying objects traveling low in the sky and leaving trails of suspicious vapor across the land. Yeah, I've heard of that. They also reported seeing a strange figure walking around. In the fields? Yeah, that seemed to yeah. be spraying something as well. Yeah. That, but that could have been a bunch of insane rotting people yeah. hallucinating before death. Yeah, it could have been a number of things, but it's just interesting that they were reported, they were reporting seeing things flying in the sky in a time when there was nothing flying in the sky other than birds. Yeah. How shitty would that be if aliens were just like crop dusting it? That's what yeah. the cause of the Black Plague was. Yeah. I'm not saying it's aliens, but aliens. <laughs> That's just a mass poisoning. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a a weird one that I that I just because like I had said I or like you had said I had heard about the figures in the field but I had never heard about things flying around spraying suspicious vapor. Yeah, and so that kind of uh, especially when put with the strange figures that were seen, and I think weren't the figures also seen spraying some sort of thing. Yeah, from what I understand, it looked like they had a wand or a stick. Yeah. That's, yeah, so that's really curious. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the uh, UFO air battle in Germany? I may have. Was it in 1608? No, it was 1561. Okay, this is... I, I may have... Uh, they always have those fantastic drawings, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. It, basically it was spheres, discs, and cross-shaped things flying through the sky. Like, they just filled the sky, and then they started to do battle with each other. Yeah, this is quite a fantastic story. And the people came out, they were witnessing it. There's paintings done of it. Um, it was in Nuremberg, Germany. And they said when the, the craft were hit, they would crash to the earth and evaporate into smoke and eventually disappear. That's weird. And the the battle lasted over an hour, and afterwards, the ones that had crashed disappeared. The rest flew away. Yeah, they have a lot of good paintings and depictions of what they saw. It's the strangest yeah. drawings, just from the time period and how art was at the time. The, yeah. drawing, the drawings are super weird. I yeah, love, really I love cool. them. Yeah, and that's that's kind of a, a more famous one. And even though it's not part of any of our wars i thought it was relevant because it was a war that they were having or what seemed like a war to us yeah the accounts from the witnesses uh, they state that they were deliberately firing upon each other trying to destroy each other it was yeah. a, a downright battle and they it's were... interesting to note that they didn't target the human populace at all during yeah that. makes you wonder if they're being protected if, if one of those crafts were yeah. protecting the people maybe yeah, that is that is uh, pretty interesting to contemplate. Some aliens are all right. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> the earliest one that I was able to find for, uh, as far as the U.S. is concerned, was actually during the Revolutionary War, and this is kind of a a neat story. It's it's not really UFOs exactly, but while camped at Valley Forge. George Washington was aided by a tribe of Native Americans that were known as the Greenskins. And the Greenskins, they were said to have hovering lodges 
and lived in a glowing globe in the woods that was sometimes there and sometimes not. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's how it was described. It was sometimes there and sometimes not. It's the floating black castle from Kroll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's That's really weird. And uh, I was only able to find one source of that, but... That is very it's, weird. I've never yeah. heard that before. The, uh, yeah. A tribe called the Greenskins that lived in... How did you say it? They lived in a glowing globe in the woods that was sometimes there and sometimes not. That is way strange, man. Yeah. And the fact that they said they had hovering lodges as well. And Washington reported this himself? Uh, I don't recall if... I don't think it was Washington himself. I think it was reported by someone in his army. Allegedly. I mean, where, where would they have pulled that from? Yeah, you know, I mean the the green skins and hovering light. That's that stuff is all crazy talk. If if there is government involvement with the aliens and stuff, do you think it goes back that far? No, I don't. I I think that if if it was it could be just because at that time Washington wasn't part of the government. He was a general in the army, and so he was focused on winning this war. He wasn't into politics yet he he wasn't you know the pre- he wasn't the first president of the United States yet but it would be interesting if later on after he became president if something you know if maybe he set up some form of agreement or something with with these green skins yeah. I've never Very heard weird. of that I had yeah I, I only heard it from one source but I I, I mean it, it wasn't like just some random internet source it was from a Actual, like none of the none of the stuff I'm talking about in this was done on the internet. I was, I stuck solely to books for this one. Well, bravo. Yeah, and just because I mean on the internet, there's so much bullshit out there. Not not to say that just because it's in a book, it's true. Which you know, it's definitely not the case. But a lot of these books were pretty, um, pretty well researched, and they provided a lot of of the sources for the material they got. So it, it, it seemed like it was legit. It wasn't Wikipedia or, <laughs> or Dave's UFO sightings.com or anything. <laughs> I'm sure that exists. No disrespect. It probably to does. Dave. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I love your blog. <laughs> Great photos. <laughs> yeah. Good old Dave. UFOs.com. But there, there were also ones I, I wasn't able to find any um, written sources, so I didn't want to use it. But I'm just gonna note it, just so that it's out there. But there's a lot of stories involving Napoleon. I guess we'll call them aliens. Some, some otherworldly entities that were said to have given him advice. Um, but I think they claimed to be from inside the Earth, really from the sky. Yeah. That would be reptilians, perhaps. But I, I couldn't find it in any in any of the the books I was reading, so I just figured I'd I'd give it a mention and not go any further than that, just because I can't really back it up. Yeah. But um, I guess from there, since we're uh, those were like the the earliest that I could find, and and because they're so far removed from the present. 
and it was such such weird cases. It, it, there wasn't too much to go on. It was just the basic story, and and that was kind of it. Um, but as we get more modern, the, we we tend to get a lot more reports. And uh, in World War One, every everyone's familiar with the Red Baron. They've they've at least heard of him or seen him in the Scooby Doo cartoon, <laughs> or you know heard the, the the name is familiar to people. And and the Red Baron, he was like an, an ace fighter pilot for Germany during World War One. And uh, in 1917, he was flying over France, heading toward Belgium. When he spotted an object that he claimed was over 100 feet in diameter and saucer-shaped. At the time, he assumed that it belonged to the U.S. and he fired on it and it went down and crashed. And as he flew over, he saw two occupants escape the craft and run into the woods. Wow. I had not, I've heard that story, but I did not know he shot it down. Yeah. At the time and the way people were that this is pretty much one of the most respected people. (laughs) <laughs> that could be at that time. This guy's a war hero. Yeah. And and for him to even come forward and say that, I I wouldn't suspect anybody laughed at him. I'm, I'm sure people rather said, "Are you sure?" Yeah, and it was also backed up by um, by another pilot who was flying with him at the time as well. Wow, there you go. Yeah. So I mean, you've got this ace war pilot and a second pilot, both claiming the same thing that's crazy yeah and possibly explains german bigfoot (laughs) just kidding (laughs) the the thing that i think is cool about the story is that he shot it down because in a lot of the later stories there is people who have actually fired on craft to no avail especially during world war ii it happened a lot which i'll get to but i just thought that this was really cool because he did actually shoot it down, and he did see occupants escape the vehicle. Yeah, you don't often hear that. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I was able to find one other one from World War World War One, um, and this one was the story of Sub-Lieutenant Morgan, who was a British pilot. And in 1915, he spotted a strange craft that he said looked like a train car. Whoa. And... At the time, though, with the they were flying propeller planes, and they would have a lot of them would have the guns mounted to it, and they they had the propeller set up so the propeller would I think slow down as they were shooting, so the bullets wouldn't it would pass through the blades of the propeller rather than you know blasting the propeller itself. Yeah, it's all uh, and, chain timed. Yeah, the way they would they they had the trigger so they wouldn't be able to fire if the blade was going to be in front of the bullets. Mm-hmm. But um, Lieutenant Morgan, all that he had with him was his pistol. And so he was flying. He sees this strange craft, and he opens up on it with his pistol. (laughs) And he said it shot up so fast that he thought he was losing altitude. Wow, that had to be a scary feeling. Yeah. And he ended up becoming disoriented, and he crashed into a, a marsh. And he was fine, but he fucked his plane up. But another pilot, 15 minutes later saw the same thing, and it was also spotted from the ground. And that that was actually, like I said, that was 1915, so it was two years before the Red Baron story. Jeez, to, and actually to have it cause him to crash his plane. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, unless he was drunk while he was flying. Right. And, and then decided to 
blame it on something like that. <laughs> yeah. But it would be weird. I mean, just because of when it was like UFOs were not part of popular culture. They weren't. It wasn't something you had in in the U.S. in the late 1800s. You had the the airship reports. Yeah. But that I mean, even that is vastly different than UFO reports because they were actually seeing flying ships in the sky. They weren't seeing disc-shaped craft or craft that looked like a, a train car. You know, th- those are way different looking than a flying ship yeah, or an airship or whatever. So it just seems weird that you bring that up, especially when you're at war and you could say, I was attacked by the enemy. Yeah, <laughs> no know? kidding. It, it, it just seems strange that that would be the story he came up with, but... And yeah, to find it's backed up by two sources, that's even more incredible. Yeah. Yeah, seen from the sky by another pilot and seen from the ground. <laughs> and if all the cases you've mentioned so far, they're, I mean, these are not so primitive of people to where their description is too far off. You know, it's not like somebody calling a really big lizard a dragon. You know, they're, right, sa- they're right. saying glowing and disc-shaped things, you know, the, the same thing that's being reported today. Right. That's very cool. Yeah. There's a, a weird occurrence that has happened in, um, well, it happened in, in England first, five years before World War I, um, but then similar things happened five years before World War II and at the end of World War II over Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Uh, the, the, they're they're really interesting because they're almost mundane in in their description, but the origin is the weird part. And the the first thing that I that I mentioned was five years before World War One in England, there were these things called they 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 were referred to as scare ships, and basically it looked kind of like. Um, it was a light that was seen in the sky or a searchlight that was beaming down from an object that was flying in the sky. And it appeared over England for a while. Um, and I don't remember the exact duration of that the sightings last, but it was at least a year. And they never did anything, but they were seen regularly just shining the searchlight around. Hmm. And... The thought at the time was that it was some sort of German spy blimp. But if you're going to be spying, you'd think you'd kind of be more conspicuous, (laughs) not not flight. Because it was only seen at night, and it had this really bright searchlight that it was shining around on the ground. Uh, But they never found the origin of it. It was never admitted to by the Germans. The Germans claim to have no knowledge of it. And uh, they were just seen. They never attacked. They never interacted. They just shined their lights. Now, the ones that happened a little bit later, uh, the, the five years before World War II, they were, they were called ghost flyers. And they were over Sweden, Norway, and Finland, exclusively and what these were were low-flying planes that would fly over regions where there were no 
landing strips. There were no airports. And they were usually inhospitable regions and typically during the winter. That's so weird. Yeah. they. they, Again, the thought at the time was that they were the Germans and that they they figured out a way to launch fighters from submarines in the ocean. Wow. Um, But... Then they're, they're thinking if they were doing that, they would have to have a place to refuel these planes. And there was no place nearby. And they were, there were times when they'd be seen like multiple times a night and they were seen almost nightly. And I think at, at the, by the end, it had, these had been spotted hundreds of times and there were occasions when it would, when more than one would be seen. But they were, the descriptions are that they were planes. Everyone who describes them says that they were planes. Just regular aeroplanes from that time. Yeah, but they weren't from any of those countries and they, they were not hostile. They didn't appear to be spying. They were just flying. And a lot of times they would be kind of quiet or they would have a low humming sound. At the end of the war, these ghost flyers came back, but they were now called ghost rockets because they took on the appearance of a rocket. No, they no longer had wings. They looked like actual rockets. Mm-hmm. So the thought at this point was that it was, uh, there, there was a German uh, experimental rocket base, I guess you'll call it, that was somewhat nearby that had been taken by the, the Russians, but it was completely destroyed by the end of the war. So initially it was thought that the Russians rebuilt it but that was later proven that it wasn't the case and that it was still destroyed and hmm. the Russians had never rebuilt it. So there's these rockets flying all over the place and they appeared as well in uh, Germany in 1944, just these phantom rockets. My brain kind of wants to go three places with that. I, like I, For some reason, do you think since they're described as aircrafts from the time, as some type of time travel of some type of more advanced type of craft or of course like extraterrestrial mediators to whatever was going on or do you think we're just seeing the progression of ufos that's that's i i really don't know what to make of it just because all three of these cases seem like it could be something that was made on earth and that just they don't know where it came from yeah, it, but could, the, it could be like all government testing new flying craft. Yeah, it, and the the weirdest one, though, is, is the ghost flyers, I think, because there was nowhere for these planes to refuel, and they had no idea where they were coming from. Hmm. And even if they had the technology to launch planes off of submarines at the time, which I'm not sure if they did. Uh, I mean, this was five years before World War II, so... Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say, f- just for argument's sake, that they did, they would still need a place to refuel. They couldn't do mid-air refueling. The planes would need a place to land. And you may be able to launch a plane off a submarine. I highly doubt you're going to be able to land one back <laughs> on a submarine for refueling. Yeah, not at all. And then you've got to worry good. about refueling the submarines as well. Yeah. Which they were in inhospitable territory. I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, very strange. It's it's really cool to hear all the different names for UFOs before 
UFO was coined, like Ghost yeah. Flyer and stuff. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, they did have some cool names. Let's start a band called Ghost Flyers, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a good one, man. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's already one out there, though. That's true. Especially being that they're from Sweden, Norway, and Finland. I can only imagine what <laughs> what type of band that would be. That's Now I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Watch and be like the greatest band ever. I know. We'll see. So that leads me next to the famous Battle for Long, which took place February 25th, 1942. I love this this case. To me, I'm kind of disappointed that they made a movie about it. And didn't even reference the case. (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah, they really blew it. I like the movie because I like Aaron Eckhart. I think we talked about that before on another show. But, uh... I don't know. It's such. It's to me. It's such a profound thing. I guess it's in such modern times, and uh, I will. I'll let you get into it. And I'll you know. I'll talk about that after. But I, I just love this case. Yeah, it's it's definitely, and the the picture is just. It's so iconic, man. Like you look at that picture, and it just it looks like it's something from a movie poster. It, it doesn't look like it was something that really happened, and was on the front page of a newspaper. Yeah. Oh man, it's so awesome! But, uh, I don't think uh, faking that was uh, too possible back then. No, and I've I've actually heard other theories about it, which I'll I'll get into. But uh, this this happened two months after Pearl Harbor on February twenty fifth, nineteen forty two. What had happened? It was in the middle of the night. Air raid sirens started going off, and there were reports that 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 there were enemy craft inbound. So we thought it was another attack from Japan. Uh, We had been hearing rumors that they were planning an attack on Los Angeles. So we assumed that this was it. And I don't know, um, I don't really know how publicized it was at the time, but I guess the Japanese were sending fire bombs over and balloons (laughs) and various parts along the West Coast and uh, parts of Alaska as well, I guess. Yeah, some actually touched down. Yeah. So we we didn't know what the hell was going on and and this would the, the fire balloon bomb things is one explanation for what this is, but I I really don't buy it based on what happened. So the air raid sirens go off. Literally the whole city is aware something is going on. I think it happened at like 2 or 3 in the morning. So everyone's waking up, freaking out, thinking that they're going to be bombed any minute. So people are trying to get a view of what's going on. And a lot of people reported seeing multiple craft, but they didn't seem like conventional aircraft. And all of a sudden, the anti-air guns open up, start firing on these things. Nothing goes down, though. They're not able to shoot anything out of the sky. Uh, the the famous picture has this illuminated object. It, it looks like it's oval shaped, being illuminated by multiple uh, searchlights from the ground, and you can see exploding mortar shells all around it. Yeah, it's it's too and, good to be true. Sounds yeah, it really like it. It really doesn't seem like it was something that was real, but it was in the picture the following day. Yeah, or yeah, the picture was in the papers the following day on the front page. And it's it's just fucking crazy. Which they what, pulled, didn't they? Try to have that pulled. I'm not sure if they did or not. Hmm. 
But all in all, there were about one million people who witnessed this event. <laughs> and the majority of them reported seeing multiple craft. Some reported only seeing one craft. Um, after it after it was in the paper and everything, I think two people ended up dying from shells that didn't fire crashing back to the ground. I think only two people died, though. And um, they these things never fought back. Whatever they were in the sky, they never fired back. They never did anything. They, But they also were not affected by all this anti-aircraft fire. And they just kept on, and then they left. The sirens died down. And later it was chalked up to being just wartime nerves. There's, yeah, there's a couple of things that I don't think support that, but kind of go in the same line as that theory. Like you said, it was after Pearl Harbor. And that was terrible. I used to have a friend whose uh, grandpa was involved in Pearl Harbor. And it was just a terrible thing. So I can understand why people were scared and edgy and stuff like that. But I don't know. Um, I, I find it strange to straight up fucking unload in LA. Yeah. Unless they were sure of something. And you know, if, if one guy freaked out and just started letting off rounds, mm-hmm. then why were there spotlights on this object? Why was everybody else firing on this object? I mean, apparently everybody saw it and they were reacting to something that was there. And you see something there in the picture, like that. There, there's something clearly illuminated by those lights. Yeah, they're partly. You know, it's 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 perfect. It's an overcast evening. It's it, like I said, it's too good to be true, but it just has like such a Phoenix lights ring to it. You know, just to where <laughs> a there's mass, so many witnesses. Yeah, so many witnesses, and it's just it's just ignored and and overlooked. But even, you know, okay, here we have this massive sighting. Awesome. Cool. You know, like you said, over a million people saw this craft. Well, so did the fucking military. <laughs> they started yeah, they, shooting The military at was firing at it. <laughs> yeah. Thinking it was a, a Japanese ship. Like, yeah. come on, people. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty insane. I mean, yeah. just uh, uh, the, the past 4th of July, I was standing out in front of my house. And uh, somebody let off a pretty big goddamn firework, and it shook my car I was sitting against. So it was really loud, and it made me think. I wonder why they picked that. I guess that's why they picked fireworks to celebrate the Fourth of July to kind of remind people what explosions right next to your fucking house sound like. You know, and, and I can yeah. imagine just having that much artillery and and shit like that just go off somewhere where you live. You know, I've I've heard people report. Um, you know, having shell casings in their backyard after that, you know, the pieces of bullets were just scattered throughout the whole fucking city. Mm. But I mean, just imagine how loud and scary that had to be. And, you know, those soldiers knew what that would be like. I don't yeah. think it would be straight up, you know, Jesse Ventura from Predator just freaking out and firing into <laughs> fucking nothing. You know, I don't think I don't see a fucking soldier from that era just screaming his fucking head off, holding down the trigger doing mm. that, you know, I it's just very interesting. Yeah, it's it is an interesting thing, and and just imagine if that were to happen in Los Angeles today. Oh my God, dude! Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? People, that would be insane. If we just, just rockets just start firing off from bases and places nobody even fucking knew existed on the West Coast, how much trouble that would be? How insane yeah. that would be! 
and how what the body count would be as well. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be a couple of fucking unspent rounds falling back to Earth. Right. That would be crazy. Man, yeah. Sorry, I just I just started replaying Modern Warfare three, and I just when we were playing in the city, you're <laughs> you're fighting in the city, so there's buildings falling on top of you, and just imagine, you know, I can visually see it in my head right now. That would be yeah. devastating. That'd be terrible. Just imagine what it would be like for the people too. Just the country itself having gone through Pearl Harbor two months earlier, and the amount of patriotism that the country had coming out of world war one and and with everything leading up to world war two like you're gonna you're you think the japanese are coming it's got to be terrifying yeah your country you, you know you're you're basically at war at this point mm-hmm. and war is coming to your home yeah and especially for the for the people on the west coast they've never had war on their home like at least back east we had the the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and so there was all that, and we actually had fought war on our ground. But California, that that was the first time war came to them, or they thought war was coming to them. Yeah, exactly. Something that had never happened. Yeah, and there it was. And but whoever the enemy was didn't fight back. Yeah, that's that's the strange part to me. Yeah. I think I remember hearing about uh, some fighter jets following it down the coast a bit. And oh, really? It, yeah, and it eventually, you know, increasing speed and taking off. Hmm. There's some special I saw on it, and they, they went into great detail about it. I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes. I actually, it might be on Netflix. Nice. Yeah, but I just, I couldn't imagine that, man. So loud. I mean, I used to live next to, I may have mentioned this before in another show too. I'm sorry. I like to repeat myself, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, but I used to live next to, uh, an air raid siren when they would test it every month. And it's absolutely terrifying how loud that thing gets. It's perfectly designed to warn an entire fucking city <laughs> just to have those things go off and this, and then just to, loudest explosions you can possibly yeah. imagine i don't care how close you've been to a firework or how big that firework was just explosions you didn't think humans could produce going off all around you i would shit my pants and die <laughs> as a result of the shitted pants or would it happen <laughs> independently of each other it would happen before during and after i would just die That's a lot of, of shit a pa- <laughs> Fear shit, corpse shit, all the shit's involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, I mean, that happened for us before World War II officially got underway for, for the U.S., I guess. But uh, we're all familiar, well, I would hope so, at least with the term Foo Fighters, which was the name given to the, the uh, craft, at least on the U.S. side. Um, in World War Two, the things that have been seen. But before I get into that stuff, I'll, the the first actual UFO report from World War Two, um, it happened June twenty fifth, nineteen forty two, by a flight lieutenant named Roman Sabinski, and he was a member of the three hundred first Squadron of a Polish division that was attached to the Royal Air Force. His, his report had him heading west over Holland uh, 
Uh, he was just returning from a bombing mission over Germany, and his tail gunner actually spotted it first, and he called it to Sabinski's attention that there was a glowing disc-shaped craft that appeared to be miles behind them, but it appeared to be about the size of a full moon. And as the craft approached, uh, they let it get within 200 yards, and the tail gunner opened fire on it. But the bullets had no effect on it, and it flew ahead of them, and it maintained position off the left wing. But it kept pace with the plane uh, until it eventually flew ahead. And then it stayed in front of them, keeping pace with them, before it finally shot straight up and out of sight. Wow, that's a strange one. Yeah. And that, that was that was the first one, and because it was the first one, it wasn't really given too much, uh, too much thought. They just assumed it was probably an enemy craft, something that we weren't aware of, and that maybe they had missed it when they shot at it. You know, the the typical explanations. Because how are you gonna explain that away? Yeah, imagine if you didn't even buy into the whole UFO thing. You're just hearing reports of. Uh you know, just say for the sake of argument, fighter crafts that they've never even seen or heard of before, just your enemy having something new that you probably don't have a defense for that. That's distress too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and to be, and there were the, the couple of sightings in world war one, but it's, I'm sure they went underreported and it probably wasn't a well-known thing. So to, to be the first person to experience something like this, what are you gonna? What else are you gonna think other than it's enemy technology? Yeah. Um, so that was in 1942, uh, and then the U.S. pilots started reporting seeing them in the beginning of 1943, and they they had reported a lot of the things that they were seeing seemed kind of weird. They weren't exactly craft. Um, they they reported seeing balls of smoke. Huh. Like like actual balls of smoke, not not like leftover effects from a bombing or anything. These were balls of smoke in the sky. They saw some that looked like a swarm of bees, and then there were others that said they saw projectiles that resembled a school of fish flying through the sky. That's super strange. I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah. Then you had the classic descriptions of the cylindrical disks, large rockets that were able to outmaneuver planes, and the cigar-shaped craft with the portholes. Um, but the uh, the term Foo Fighters was actually a term that was coined by the unit. It was the, the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, and it was one of America's first fighting un- night fighting units. And they'd been trained in Orlando, but they were deployed overseas in 1943. They were first sent to North Africa, then to Italy, and finally they were stationed in France in 1944. Um, they flew the, the Bristol Bowfighter, which was a British-built two-engine heavy fighter. Um, it could fly. Its top speed was around 300 miles an hour. Damn. Um, yeah, which at the time was was pretty quick. Yeah. Um they but they this this group actually reported seeing a lot of of sightings. And they each pilot underwent lots of lots of training because they were the first night fighter unit. 
So they were all above average skill, all above average eyesight, and they were well regarded as being basically the best of the best. They were trained to, to take out enemy targets. They were trained to go up against the, the, uh, German night fighting unit, the Luftwaffe. And it, it just, it wasn't just any schlub off the street that could fly a plane was allowed. They, like they had to go rigorous training to be part of the 415th. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to note that when the government wants to pick the best of the best, it's kind of like how it was in that shitty Captain America movie. They can literally have, take their pick out of a giant mass of people. Right. And then train them. Yeah. And that's what we had here. We had the best of the best, and then we put them through rigorous training and just made them one of the best fighting units that we had. But they, they specialized in night fighting. Uh, but this, the, the weird stuff started happening for them on the night of November 6th, in 1944. And there was one fighter that took off from the unit's home base in France, and it was heading to Germany hunting for enemy locomotives. And after it destroyed a bunch of the targets, the plane spotted a strange red light that was flying nearby. It came within a half mile of the aircraft before it just disappeared. And at the time, he didn't really think it was unusual. He reported the light during his debriefing, and he thought that that, was, that would be it. But a few days later, the same pilot was up again, and uh, this time he had, his <clears throat> he had his radar operator and an extra passenger who happened to be the, the intelligence officer, whose name was Captain Fred Ringwald. And the reason he went up was because other pilots had in the unit had begun reporting seeing the lights. So he thought if he was if he went up, he'd be able to get a look at one. So at some point during the patrol, all three men on board spotted a line of lights in the distance. And the intelligence officer thought that they were lights that were on a hill. But as they flew closer, they realized that there were no hills in the area. And uh, the unit's ground radar were telling them that there were no other aircraft of any kind in the area at all. Hmm. So they had these lights with no source and there was nothing on radar. Uh, the, the three men that were in this craft counted eight lights that were in a line and they were all a bright orange in color. And they could also tell that the lights were moving extremely fast. So the pilot steered toward them and the lights abruptly blinked out. But within seconds, they reappeared at a farther distance away. And then the lights remained blazing, their orange glow, for a few more minutes. And then they it appeared that they just dove down and disappeared. Hmm. So they returned to base, but the pilot chose not to say anything about spotting them because he didn't want to be you know, be accused of having battle fatigue and they, they would have grounded him and he wouldn't have been able to go out on any more missions. So he, he didn't say anything. Um, the, the captain didn't mention the lights to anyone either. And, uh, one of the, one of the people in the company said that the incident was just too weird for the intelligence officer to report it. Huh. But things got even weirder for this unit. A couple weeks later, uh, December 16th, <clears throat> was the beginning of 
what became known as the Battle of the Bulge. And the, the 415th was part of that. Uh, they were doing night patrols over Germany. And they were looking basically for truck convoys and any enemy airfields that, that might show up. And uh, they were going to be doing bombing runs on the convoys and airfields if they, they saw any. Uh, one of the fighters flying over Germany, they were flying low. And the pilot spotted what he said were a half dozen red and green blinking lights that took the shape of a T. Hmm. And he assumed it was enemy flak, and he kept on going. But a few minutes later, he saw that the the T shape reappeared, and this time it was closer to him, and it was toward his rear. And he decided to turn left. Lights followed. He turned right. The lights stayed with him. No matter what he did, the lights followed him. And this they followed him for five minutes until the lights blinked out. And he didn't see them again for the rest of his run. A few days later, there was another mission with another sighting. Uh, one of this was a different pilot. He was flying near Strasbourg in France, and his crew were suddenly aware of two orange lights that were approaching them. And the lights came right up to the the plane. They leveled off and they took position near the tail. And they remained for a couple of minutes before they turned away from the crab or from the plane and just blinked out. The next night, there were two more sightings. Huh. One pilot said he saw reddish flames in the air at 10,000 feet. And another said he saw a red glowing object shoot up towards his aircraft, then turn over and go into a deep dive before disappearing. So these these ones both, well, the the reddish flames, especially at ten thousand feet, that just seems really weird. Like why, even if there were flames at ten thousand feet, why the hell would there be flames at ten thousand feet? You know, yeah. if it was just regular pl- flames, let's just for argument's sake say it was regular flames. What the fuck were regular flames doing at ten thousand feet in the air? Yeah, there's no phenomena that produces a hellish yeah. fireball at ten thousand yeah. feet. And it's not like he said it was an explosion. Yeah, that's there's a good. big difference between an explosion and seeing flames, red flames. Yeah. But two nights later, same same unit, four <laughs> more sightings. Four? Four sightings one night. Wow. Um, one crew saw two yellow streaks of flame that were flying even at about 3,000 feet. Later on the same night, they saw several red balls of fire that flew level with them for at least 10 seconds before they disappeared. Then there was a second crew that reported seeing four bright lights in a vertical formation, and they said that they were staggered evenly but hovering motionless two miles above the ground. And then a third crew saw bright white lights that followed them for more than five minutes despite them taking evasive action. So they were being followed by these things. Um, but around this time, they, they decided they had to call these things something. They couldn't just keep saying they're seeing weird lights. So there's a pilot by the name of Charlie Horn who suggested the name Foo Fighters, and it's speculated that the name came from a 
comic strip at the time called Smokey Stover. And Smokey Stover was a fireman whose fire truck was called the Fumobile. <laughs> so they decided to, to call these things after the Fumobile. So they called them Foo Fighters. And the name stuck, and it, it had been used since. That's well, at, le- at least for the, the Allies during World War II. Um, there, there were still more that occurred with with this unit, though. Uh, on December 27th, there were two more sightings. Uh, one crew encountered strange lights throughout most of its patrol, and they described them as being bright orange balls that were hanging in the air. They would move suddenly and and then disappear, but they would disappear in ones and twos. And then another crew saw three sets of red and white lights that were trailing them on both sides of the aircraft. Then two nights later on New Year's Eve, one of the crew members saw a group of lights fly past them at 10,000 feet. And then this this went on and on, and they, they were reporting seeing them regularly. Um, they, they saw them for, it was about for five weeks, and... All in all, the intelligence officer reported 14 separate incidents in five weeks' time. Jeez. But it got it got to the point, and just them seeing all these sightings is cool enough, but it got to a point where it, word had gotten back to the states about all the sightings that these guys were seeing. And nameless men from a nameless department within the United States government showed up and decided to start going on night flights with these guys so that they could document what was going on. And after a few days flying with them, they left, didn't say anything else, and nothing else was ever heard from these men again or what department. There was no report ever given on what was seen. They didn't know if these men, when they went up, if they spotted anything. They didn't even know what department they were from. They just knew that they were from New York and... The, the members of the squadron had orders to fly with them at night. That's creepy. Yeah. A little bit. I can't help but wonder, um, since it's an aerial setting, when they blink out, do you think that they're actually disappearing or they're actually just turning off all their lights to appear like they're disappearing? They could be teleporting. That's true, too. Yeah. I don't see why not. Maybe, or maybe they're just using uh, wormhole technology, which I guess would kind of be teleportation in and of itself. Meh. But, you know, something like that, I don't think it's really a matter of them turning their lights off and then turning them back. I'm like, ah, I fooled you. That'd be funny. (laughs) (laughs) Just fucking with people. Do you know how much it costs to run the teleporter? Just turn off the goddamn lights. Yeah. Turn off the goddamn lights, speed up, and then turn them back on. They'll think we disappeared and reappeared. It'll be great. But uh, a lot of the stuff that was being seen, not not only by the by the 415th, but just by both sides in general, were explained away as being experimental weapons. Um, on the Allied side, because um, they started reporting seeing rockets. That that was a, a big thing, were these rockets that could turn on a dime. Um, so it was explained away as being a German weapon called the HS-293, which was basically like 
a remote controlled rocket with a warhead at the end and the nose cone. Didn't it have like that helicopter rotor looking thing at the end of it instead of just I, a traditional? Yeah, I believe it. I believe it did. Hmm. At the, you mean as its propulsion device? Yeah. Yeah. It had that as well as a rocket. But. And it had, um, the, they, they thought it was these things just because they seemed to be moving on their own. And if it was remote controlled, they'd be able to. However, the thing with the HS-293 is that it couldn't fly in a level formation and it couldn't tar- turn sharply at all. And it was very hard con- to control. And basically what they would use, they would, they would drop it from the HE-111 bomber and it was used to target shipping convoys, basically. So they would, they would drop them out of these planes and then they would use the remote control to guide it to its destination. So it was a little more accurate than just dropping a bomb because if you were off, you could maneuver it, but it wasn't, it didn't have a great deal of maneuverability. Like it's not something you're going to be able to keep formation with, um, with other planes or turn on a dime or do any of the crazy shit that was being described. Um, the sightings of these things, while it, they did seem to focus on the actual theater of war. They were also known to, I guess, spy on training exercises as well. There was one incident in 1943 that was a training exercise over Long Beach, California. And there was uh, pilots training in, in, in a fighter. And as they were flying, an object approached them and made a sharp turn. And then it began flying in formation with the plane. The object was a bright orange, and the pilot described it as looking like the fuselage of a typical aircraft, but it had no wings or propellers. After about 30 seconds, it sped up to what he approximated as 5,000 miles per hour, <laughs> which, I mean, we back up to the 415th, they, they, their fighters were able to fly at 300 miles an hour. Wow. But this thing didn't attack. It didn't return. They just saw it on this training mission, and off it went. I just like how bold they are. They're just rolling right up on these guys. Yeah, like, <laughs> not a big deal. I'm just like, hey, what's going on? Checking you out. See you. And total observational. <laughs> just checking everything out. Yeah. So I, I just thought that was, I wanted to, to mention that case just because it was a weird one. Because um, it didn't happen in the actual theater of war, but it happened in a training exercise in the United States around the same time. So it just kind of shows whatever these things were, we're interested in all aspects of, of the war thing. Yeah. So back to, uh, the theater of war, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) um, there were, Everyone's familiar with, with D-Day and the, the storming of the beach in Normandy and all that. And that was June 6th, 1944. And there was a crewman who was storming the beach by the name of Ed Breckel. And as he was coming in on the, on the boat, he saw a long tubular object that was flying in a circular pattern 15 feet above the water. He said it was moving too fast to be a balloon or a blimp, 
but eventually, as the battle started to heat up, he lost sight of it, and he wasn't able to um, see it again. But I just thought that was interesting, because we had all these boats storming the beaches, and there was this thing flying right along with them, 15 feet above the water. Yeah, that's super strange. I wonder if it makes it easier to discredit, as most UFO sightings are, because it happens during war times. I think, I don't know, it's kind of like a, all the witnesses are super credible people. Yeah. There's no gain to reporting it. There's, they're pretty much told to, they report it because they have to. Mm-hmm. Very interesting when it involves a lot of military people, no matter what country. They're all straight-laced guys. Yeah. There was, um, this, this wasn't, I, I know all the ones I've been giving have been mostly allied, but, um, there was an interesting case in June, later in June in Italy in 1944. And there was an egg shaped craft that just kind of appeared in the sky. Um, it looked to be metallic and glistening is how it was described, but it hovered motionless in the sky and it was in the middle of a battle and both the allies and the Germans focused on this thing and they both sides began firing on it. The allies thinking <laughs> it was the Germans craft, the Germans thinking it was the allied craft. That's awesome. Yeah. So both sides were firing on it at the same time with no effect. And eventually both sides realized there was no effect and they stopped firing. As soon as they stopped firing, the object flew off at high speed. I wonder why all the firing that these things are taking have no effect. That kind of makes no sense as far as it being an aircraft. Yeah, it's definitely, I don't know. Maybe they've got some sort of weird field around them. I don't know. Yeah. That's when you get into the science fiction stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, well, you, you kind of have to, you know, when you're, when you're trying to explain that. Because if they have technology to do what they're doing, I'm pretty sure they have some type of of that technology <laughs> devoted to defense and weaponry as well. So them having some type of force field or something like that, yeah, it's not too far-fetched of an idea, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the, there's just too much different stuff. Like, what if what if it's only partially in our dimension? but not physically in our dimension. Like, we can see it, but we couldn't actually touch it. Yeah, it's only certain points of the spectrum of our plane. Yeah. That's true. What if it is some type of just, I don't know, some type of projection or some type of gaseous ball that does some type of technology, some type of probe? Who knows? But that's weird that they don't take any damage when they're fired upon. I mean, at no time in history were bullets from that were fired from airplanes small. These are all very big caliber bullets that should uh, pretty much fuck up anything they hit. Right. And I just, I, th- that's why I think that um, the Red Baron case is so interesting. Yeah. Because he did shoot it down. Yeah, that's strange. You don't hear that uh, often at all. There's only a few cases of that. It would have been more interesting if he crashed with it and had a fist fight with them or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How to pull out like a, pull out a whip and a luger and just starts beating the shit out of aliens. 
Yeah, that'd be awesome. So I've covered the European theater. So let's move to the Pacific theater. The Pacific theater actually had some really crazy cases that went down. Like the, I mean, the, the stories of the 415th were, were pretty crazy, but some of this stuff is just really out there. So I guess we'll start first in 1942. There was a Dutch cruiser called the RNN Tromp in the Timor Sea near, near uh, New Guinea. And a crew member on board saw, uh, they, they spotted a fast moving disc that was flying toward the ship. And as it approached, it slowed down and it began to orbit the ship. <laughs> and it was keeping pace as it continued to move. And it orbited the ship for four hours before it broke orbit and then flew out of sight. Jeez, four hours? Four hours. <sighs> and, I mean, this, this was so early on in the, in the war that this would have been before the, the, uh, Foo Fighters would have been, cause the Foo Fighters weren't even coined till, what did I say, 44, 43? Yeah. Yeah, I think 44. But, um, yeah, this, this, uh, and a lot of these cases, they just thought it was Japanese technology that we didn't know anything about. Yeah, that would have been that would be my natural first thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were we're there on the other side of the world, <laughs> you know. It's they, <laughs> they, we don't exactly know what they could be capable of. But later that same year, um, off off the coast of Tasmania, Royal Australian Air Force pilot reported seeing a, a bronze craft with a rear fin that emitted blue and green flashes. And the object kept pace with his plane, and then it suddenly turned away and accelerated into the ocean. And when it went into the ocean, it created a huge whirlpool as it disappeared. Whoa. Yeah. Which would make sense with a large object quickly going into a large body of water. Yeah. It goes into the USO thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and and there's actually another um, a later report in the in the Pacific as well as 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 that being associated with water. Uh, let me see what other. Oh, okay, there was one um, over Gilbert Island, there the Gilbert Island chain in the Central Pacific. And there was a radar station that picked up an unknown aircraft on screen. And it was moving north to south at approximately 700 miles an hour, which, as I mentioned earlier, the, the crafts at the time flew around 300 miles per hour. So this was, um, this was about, you know, a little more than double the, the, uh, crafts at the time. And then a second aircraft showed up shortly after flying in the same direction and at the same speed. Again, they were thought that it was maybe the Japanese had developed some form of secret craft that was able to break the sound barrier. But at the time, they thought it could either be the Japanese or it could be something not of this earth. They were actually starting to think about this at the time. So this, the, and, and with it, with these things being seen in both theaters now, it was starting to become a big deal. Military was becoming aware of it it was being reported back as i mentioned the uh the guys from washington who came over to to do their own checking i guess later that same year in june 
June 1944, Coast Guard vessel was stationed about 800 miles southeast of Hawaii when it received a message that a U.S. Navy patrol plane had crashed into the sea near their location. So the ship went over to search for survivors, and it, it got to the estimated location, but they saw no evidence of a crash, and they found no survivors. A day later, while the ship was anchored uh, at the island of Palmyra, the executive officer on board spotted a bright light over the island around midnight. He looked through his binoculars, and he noticed that it was a perfect sphere that was shining brightly. And it flew over the ship, and it hovered above the ship before it moved in the direction where the reported plane crash was. And the officer said that they had never they had never recovered any wreckage, but he felt that the whatever the light he saw was, was had something to do with the missing plane. Hmm. But the the plane was never seen again. I think didn't we cover a story that mentioned this before? We may have. Maybe in the weird ass <laughs> the weird ass UFO cases. Uh, I think we were talking about some type of plane that they were trying to recover from the water that they were saying it was, but it ended up not being that type of plane. So it kind oh of, no, I think we were talking about uh, Flight 19. Okay, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, and they found it was the type of plane. It just was a was a different model or had a different serial number on it. Okay, my bad. Yeah, it happens. Oh, there's 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 one that just occurred to me that I forgot to mention that I just want to. This happened in in Europe, but it's it's just too cool not to mention. But the uh, th- there was a firefight <clears throat> over France, I believe it was, and um, the one of the pilots reported seeing these silver discs. They were about the size of silver dollars, but they were drifting from above them and there was nothing flying overhead but there were these little silver discs things that would rain from the sky and they would they reported seeing it land on one plane's wings and then the wings started smoking (laughs) and that plane ended up being either shot down or crashing during the battle so they couldn't check the wings afterwards that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know why that just uh, why I was just reminded of that, but I wasn't. So I I figured I would shoehorn that in here somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Pacific. So, like I said, there was a lot of weird stuff that happened in the Pacific. And uh, have you ever heard of the U.S. USS New York? No. There there were actually five ships that went by that name at, at one point and um but the first one the first USS New York it was a battleship uh was laid down September 11th 1911 and that that actually that date has some some meaning later on but uh it, it started out as being part of a convoy in the North Atlantic at the beginning of World War 2 but it was eventually refitted and sent to the South Pacific just in time for the invasion of Iwo Jima in 1945. Uh, so it participated in the invasion 
and after the battle, it had to get some repairs done. So it got the repairs done, and then it went on the next mission, which was supporting the invasion of Okinawa in April 1945. So one day in between these two missions, while it's getting repaired and the crew's you know, doing what the crew does in downtime, uh, the, the ship was sailing near New Guinea when its radar picked up an unidentified object heading its way. So the captain called the crew to the battle stations, and moments later, there was a craft that was hovering right above their ship. But Well, I, I say right above, but it was, it was about four miles in the sky. And to the, the crew members on board, it appeared shiny and silver in color, and it was making no noise. And they estimated there were at least 2,000 sailors on board the ship that saw the object, including the ship's commanding officer, which was uh, Captain Christian. Wow. With the with the USS New York, there are also two destroyers that were escorting it, and the crews on both of these ships saw the craft as well. And they were all aware it was not a, not an airplane, and whatever it was was keeping pace with the three ships. And at the time, they were going barely 12 knots. So in order for it to stay with them, it could not have been a plane because a plane wouldn't be able to go that slow and stay in the sky. Yeah, without stalling out. Yeah, so it's unknown what it what it was. It was during the daytime, so it was not a star, and it wasn't a balloon because it was traveling at the exact same speed as the ship. So unless it was somehow anchored to the ship without them knowing, it was not a balloon. Hmm. So they had no idea what that was. Uh, but they... Two of the two of its anti-aircraft guns opened up on the thing, and they thought they had hit it, but the thing remained unfazed. As soon as they stopped firing on it, the object accelerated and flew away at at an amazing speed. And they weren't able to keep keep track of it. Like I had said, uh, the the U.S. USS New York. There had been five ships by that name. Um, but the most recent one was commissioned in November of 2009, and its hull was made from eight tons of steel that was recovered from the World Trade Center wreckage after the September 11th attacks. So that's kind of a neat, uh, neat story to tie along with, with its origin on September 11th. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 90 years earlier, yeah. Um, another cool story, there there was these things called the Nancy Soto ghosts. And I could very well be mispronouncing that because <laughs> I don't speak Japanese. But these things, it was weird sighting. It wasn't even seen by people. They were ghosts on the radar. Um, but it was they were only seen in this area of the Nansei Shoto Archipelago, which is located off the southern coast of Japan. And it was seen on sonar and radar, and it was picked up sometimes by submarines. They would pick up things on the sonar, or the, yeah, the sonar, showing that there were ships approaching them, and they would make evasive maneuvers under the water, and these things on the radar would also move in accordance with whatever their movement was. 
Hmm. So it would get to the point where they'd send up the periscope to take a look at what was following them, thinking that somehow something above the water had gotten track on them. There's nothing at all in the water anywhere. Do we know how big an object would have to be for it to be picked up on this radar? I mean, do it have to be something at least the size of... Well, this this was sonar, but I, I mean, I don't know if that has any difference, and I honestly don't know how radar and sonar works, like what would be picked up and what wouldn't be picked up. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine it, they wouldn't be picking up like sure. a single fish. Yeah, you know? it's... Yeah. And a school of fish would would show. I don't think it would show up as one big object. Yeah, I think it would probably look like like a hazy thing or something. But yeah, they didn't see anything when when they would bring up the periscope, and there was no indication of anything physical that it could be. But then, just as suddenly, the thing on the screen would just disappear, and it would be gone. Uh, there's a creepy. It's I, I think it's really creepy, and I, I don't know if I would exactly say that this is UFOs because it wasn't actually seen by people. But in the summer of 1945, a radar operator on a aircraft carrier spotted what he described as a large plot suddenly appear on his radar screen. And he said it looked like 300 unidentified aircraft were heading for the aircraft carrier. And they were flying at nearly 700 miles per hour. Holy crap. So immediately, the Navy sent fighter planes out. And about 65 miles away from the carrier, the large plot that they had seen on the screen began to morph. They they began to morph and appear on the screen as large tentacles. And the tentacles that were seen on the screen eventually appeared to wrap themselves around the aircraft carrier. Whoa. And like I said, they had scrambled the, the the fighters out. And when they reached the point that had been indicated on the radar, there was nothing there. And then the plot <laughs> disappeared from the radar completely. Wow. Yeah, that's almost like a different type of anomaly. I wonder what the hell you can attribute that to. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's really crazy. That's some Scooby-Doo phantom space <laughs> sea yeah. creature. Uh, maybe it was Cthulhu. Yeah, the ship hugger. <laughs> that's super weird. Yeah, yeah. It's a, that's, that's one of the weirder stories that I found uh, during World War II. Yeah, it's just having something be on radar and not having it physically be there. It does, like you said, it has an extra creepy touch to it and yeah, yeah. more spooky. You know, like you always hear about the ghost ships where, you know, they see translucent ships sailing or, or people see boats that there's no record of them being there and, you know, has it like a ghostly feel to it. That's pretty neat. Right. And, and I just, I just find it really weird that these things, appeared to be flying and then they looked like tentacles that wrapped the ship yeah that's strange but the ship didn't experience anything and they nothing was seen so yeah, how strange that must have looked yeah yeah i can't even imagine what it could have find the whatcast on twitter the whatcast 
find Mike on Twitter at Last Bone Stands and Mateo at Breakface. All show notes, photos, episodes, and links can be found at thewatcast.tumblr.com. You can find us on iTunes and Facebook as well. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at thewatcasters at gmail.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.